This is Dr. John Walton in his teaching on the book of Job. This is session number four, Genre and Structure, Nature of Wisdom. Well, the time has come for us to talk about the genre of the book of Job and its structure. So, here's what we have to think about. Is this book real? Some people would answer that question by asking, is it history or fiction? I think that's a false dichotomy. Those aren't the only two options on the table. And so we have to think about what the book is doing and how it's doing it. Now, that's, that's a question of genre, but we have to understand that genre is a tricky thing. Genre helps us to know how to read a book. You know, if we were reading a mystery, we'd read it differently than if we're reading a biography. If we're reading an editorial, that's different from reading a comic strip. We read things differently when we understand their genre. But what genre does, an identification of genre, positions a piece of literature in a community of like literature. It identifies the things that are like it, and by doing so, it gives us strategies for reading that are based on the group as a whole. That means in order for a genre identification to be meaningful, we have to have other members in the set. Otherwise, it really doesn't help us to read. There's where we run into some problems with Job. On the one hand, we can identify it easily enough as wisdom literature, that's a broad category, but we know that there are many different genres of wisdom literature. Proverb, a proverb, is a genre of wisdom literature. That's far different than a dialogue uh, that could be a wisdom dialogue. And so saying it's wisdom literature gives us a broad category and gives us some sense of expectation, but it doesn't really give us a strategy per se. And that's where we run into a problem with the book of Job. There's nothing like it. There is no community of literature other than the broad scope of wisdom. It's true. I mean, we have pieces of literature that are dialogues, and Job has some dialogue in it. We have pieces of literature which are wisdom hymns, and Job has a wisdom hymn in it. We have pieces of literature that are discourse, and Job has some discourses. So it has bits and pieces of genres that we know from other pieces. But when you look at the book of Job as a whole, there's nothing like it. There's other books that deal with innocent suffering in the ancient world, but they're really not like Job at all. So as a result, we have numerous genres within the book. We have a number of similar scenarios in the ancient Near Eastern world. But we really don't have anything that's 
quite like the book of Job. Which means that we're a little bit on our own outside of those general categories that we can deal with. It is wisdom literature. And that can guide us uh, through a lot of kind of our questions about asking strategy. One form of wisdom literature, and it's the one that I would like to propose, is the form of thought experiment. In a thought experiment, you propose a scenario. It's a scenario that's carefully constructed to have all the features necessary for an issue to be explored. Again, we find that Jesus does this some in the parables. The parables are not a, um, an account, a narrative about real events. They're events that, in some senses, could have been real, but in other senses not. And the details are put together in a particular way to help us to think about an issue. So parable is one form of thought experiment. I don't believe that Job is a parable, but I think that it is another form of thought experiment. In a thought experiment, it's sort of a what-if scenario. What if we had this kind of situation? The point is not to claim that the events in the thought experiment did happen, but they draw their philosophical strength from the realistic nature of the imaginative device. Think of this. It really... It could happen, but this is more extreme. Everything's extreme. In the book of Job, we'll notice that everything is as stretched to the, to the extreme as it can possibly be. And it's those extremes that make the book work. If Job were less righteous, there was kind of a mm, pretty good most of the time then the book wouldn't work because you could say, oh, he did do some things wrong and that could be the problem. If his suffering were less dramatic, if it had come on gradually or really wasn't so thorough, comprehensive, we might say, well, he's suffering a little bit. Everybody suffers a little bit. And, you know, we could account for that, perhaps. A little bit of not righteous behavior and a little bit of suffering. And, well, that's the world that we often face. But no, no, in the book of Job, everything's pulled to the, to the furthest extreme so that no easy answers are left on the table. Ah, see, that's, that's the strategy. Remove all the easy answers and you're left to deal with the philosophical idea, the wisdom point. The question about whether the events are real, then, is misplaced. They're almost put together to be surreal. To be real enough, but more, more extreme than what we could imagine. Now let's think through this a bit. If it's a thought experiment then at least some parts of the book uh, we would have to just call literary construct rather than real event. 
literary construct. Now, there are some parts of the book that everyone has long agreed are literary construct. The speeches of the friends. People don't talk that way, just extemporaneously. People don't just casually talk in this high, elevated language. Even some of our best rhetoricians don't talk that way. And furthermore, even if they did, even if you could say, well, in the ancient world they did, and these were really smart guys, and etc., etc., there's no stenographer. They don't have stenographers in the ancient world to sit down there and take it all down. The speeches of the friends are a literary construct. Everyone has recognized that. But you see what that does? As, as soon as we identify some part of the book as literary construct, we then have to ask the question, how far does that go? How much of it is literary construct and how much of it might be just a, re, a record of events? Where do you draw the line? And once you've acknowledged that some parts of the book are literary construct, it doesn't matter where you draw the line. Because literary construct is okay in a thought experiment. Now, I do myself believe that Job was a real person in a real past. That he had become well known in the ancient world as a really good person who had really desperate events come upon him. I, I tend to think that he really is such a person. But I think that this story about him is a thought experiment using this well-known person in order to investigate a wisdom concept. So, I take the basic form of the narrative. No, I shouldn't say that. The basic content of the narrative, meaning the life of Job. A man, righteous, suffered. As kind of a historical anchor in a real past. But I think it's that most of the rest of the book is thought experiment. A literary construct. Again, the use of extremes, um, the philosophical issues that are brought to the table, um, all to make the point. Now, maybe you're struggling with that idea. Keep thinking about it. Maybe you're not, but maybe my next step will be one that is even harder to swallow. So think with me. If the book, for the most part, is a thought experiment, a literary construct, is that also true of the speeches of God? Is this also an inspired author putting words in the mouth of God to address the issue at hand? Hmm. And... What does it say about the opening scene in heaven? Is that also literary construct? 
is that also designed to set up an extreme situation. It may be important to think about it that way. And I am proposing that you at least think about it in those terms. Remember, the truth of the book is in its wisdom teaching. That is what's being affirmed. The truth of the book does not require anything on the level of historicity. It's a wisdom book. And if it's a thought experiment, it is painted in extremes. Here's the advantage to thinking about even the scene in heaven as part of the literary construct thought experiment. It'll help us avoid the significant problem of thinking that's how God really operates. If this is a thought experiment, it's just saying, what if, what if such a scene in heaven were to open? What if this is the shape the conversation took place? All of that to set up the scenario for Job. Do you see how this avoids certain things that readers often struggle with in the book? This does not intend to convey a picture of a God who makes a wager with the devil. Some people, that's been a real problem to think that God would work that way. For some people, they look at the book and they look at their lives and they say, maybe God and Satan are having a conversation about me. Maybe my experiences are because of some divine wager. That is not what we ought to be getting from this book. That is not an option on the table. That's not what this book is doing. These are obviously complicated issues and complex for us to think through. But think about it. The teaching of the book is not tied in to the reality of the events. The teaching of the book is built from the literary scenario that is laid out. And if that's a thought experiment, there's been a lot of creativity going into laying out that scenario just right. Just right so the easy answers are off the table and there's room for discussion about how we should think about the world and what God does or does not do. I don't mean what he does or does not do in a session in heaven. But how do we think about God and his responsibility for suffering or how he's not responsible for suffering? How do we think about God's role in the events that we encounter in the world? It's not about what goes on in the heavenly discussions. So, with that kind of thought experiment idea in mind, we want to talk about how the book accomplishes its teaching. This is what we call the rhetorical strategy. It talks about how the book is laid out 
literarily. The structure of the book is pretty easy to identify. Uh, it has a sandwiching effect. We've got a prose prologue with the scene in heaven and Job's, uh, Job's experiences. And we have a prose epilogue, okay, where God restores Job. Now, so those are the two bookends. Um, in the very middle of the book, we have a hymn to wisdom. Many people have wondered about that hymn to wisdom. In a casual reading, one can easily think that it's Job speaking. Job is speaking in chapter 27. Chapter 28 is the hymn to wisdom. And in chapter 29, Job is speaking. Um, And it doesn't introduce a new speaker in 28. And so some people have assumed that it's just Job speaking straight through. But there's a problem. Uh, The section that ends in 27 is the dialogue section of the book. The section that starts in 29 is the discourse section of the book. And this hymn to wisdom is squarely in between them. In fact, it provides a transition from the dialogue section to the discourse section. And what we find, whether we're looking in the dialogue section or the discourse section, what we find is that nowhere does Job have the kind of perspective that is represented in chapter 28. The hymn to wisdom has a a position, a perspective, an insight that Job does not, as a person, get to, either before or after. And therefore, it's really out of place in Job's mouth. The alternative, and one that many people adopt, and I, I agree with it, is that in the hymn to wisdom in chapter 28, the narrator comes back into play. The one who gave us the epilogue, and I'm sorry, the prologue in the epilogue, who set up the scene and brings it to a conclusion, has come back into the middle. And he comes back in after we've completed the dialogue between Job and his friends. That's the dialogue section. And that starts in chapter 3 and goes through chapter 27. Job and his friends kind of alternately talking to one another. And all of that winds down. It winds down, the speeches get shorter, and in the last one, Zophar doesn't even have anything to say. He's made his point, he's done. Bildad's is very short, okay? They've kind of run out of steam in the dialogue. Remember, this dialogue is supposed to be taking place among the wisest people known in the ancient world. And you get to the end of it, and the hymn to wisdom, in a very elaborate and um, eloquent way, basically says, is that all you've got? Is that, is that it? Do you think that is wisdom? You haven't even scratched the surface. And the book then, in that hymn to wisdom, turns our attention. It turns our attention from what looks like is a discussion about justice. And it says, now you're missing it. You're missing it entirely. It's about wisdom. So the hymn to wisdom, I believe, plays a a very significant role in the middle of the book as it transitions us from dialogue to discourse, as it shows that really the dialogue section accomplished nothing 
as it brings the narrator back in to kind of move us along to the next part. And it helps us to see what the issue really is. We'll come back to that later on. So, we've got our prologue and epilogue. We've got the hymn to wisdom in the middle. And then the major sections are the dialogue and discourse. Dialogue comes first, and this is where we find Job and his friends discussing the issues. And so we have Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, each giving speeches, Job responding to them. And that's the dialogue section. Starts with Job's lament in chapter 3, picks up with Eliphaz's speech in chapter 4, and goes through 27. Then the hymn to wisdom, then the discourses. The discourses are different from the dialogues because they're not, they're not interchanged. Um, and so here these are just three characters giving speeches. Job gives his speeches in 29 to 31. Elihu gives his speeches in 32 to 37. And then Yahweh gives speeches. Uh, and that fills out the discourse section. So we have uh, the dialogues and the discourses, which contain lots of the raw content of the book. And then the epilogue draws it all to a close. Now, I find this structure helps us to understand the rhetorical strategy. That is, the structure helps us to work through how is the case being built. And I don't see that any of the pieces could easily be left out and the book still be coherent and accomplish its purposes. Um, Yes, they're very different literarily. You've got narrative, you've got dialogue, you've got discourse, you've got hymn. They're very different, but they all work together. And you can't leave any one of them out and still have something that has a coherent message to it. So as we work through the book, we're going to be building the rhetorical strategy. We're going to be looking for the um, a, a contribution that each part of the book makes because we believe that each part does make a contribution. Uh, we're treating the book as a coherent whole, as a unity, not something that's been thrown together as a patchwork quilt or with many different hands. And that's why I talked earlier about the idea that this may be one of those pieces that comes together as a book. If it's literary construct, if it's constructed, composed, thought experiment with a wisdom message, and that all the pieces are part of it, this one actually may have been composed as a book. Though the bards of the ancient world were talented, and they could put this together as a oral piece as well. It would be a lot to learn, a lot to memorize, but the bards of the ancient world did that. Some of the Homeric literature is pretty long itself, and that was, that was passed along orally. So, hard to tell. In the end, it doesn't matter. We've got the book as it is. Uh, it's got an identifiable, really easily identifiable structure, and that gives it its rhetorical strategy. And so from that, we're going to try to understand the message of the book. The rhetorical strategy tells us what the author is doing. The rhetorical strategy is the author's strategy. Again, I'm using author. That's kind of a shortcut here for the communicator, whether oral or written. It's the rhetorical strategy 
that helps us to see into the intention of the author. And it's that intention which has authority. Remember, it's God's authority, but God has vested that authority in a human communicator. And if we're going to get God's authoritative message, we have to get it through the human communicator. And so we're always looking for what we call the author's intention. What are they getting at? I believe that part of the author's intention is a thought experiment. Some may differ, and that's okay. Um, It will make a difference. It will affect how we think about different parts of the book. Uh, But in the end, that's what we're trying to get to. Remember, faithful interpreters are pursuing the message of a book that was delivered by God through a human communicator, a human instrument to us. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. And so we have to try to discern what it is that that human communicator was getting at. And that's where we'll find the authority. We don't have the freedom to freelance, to kind of read our own thing into it. We don't have the freedom to say, oh, I think the book really wants me to think this way. If you can't get it from the book itself, you're not getting it from God, (laughs) and then what good is it doing? So we pay attention to the genre with all of the problems we've suggested. We pay attention to the rhetorical strategy. All of that trying to help us to get the best understanding we can of what the inspired book has to say that the author intended as God communicated through them. This is Dr. John Walton in his teaching on the book of Job. This is session number four, Genre and Structure, Nature of Wisdom.